Good morning, good morning. It is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike, one of the pastors on the team. I absolutely love praising Jesus with you. Uh, you might want to grab your notes out of your handout today. And uh, we're starting a new series. The series is called Loaded Questions. And um, we're very, very excited about what God's going to do, what he's going to stir up, how he's going to lead us through these next six weeks. But before I jump into the actual topic for today, I just want to give you one word. You can write this down. Just think about this word. The word is grace. I just want you to think about that. In all of its weight, let it, let it kind of hit you and sink in. The idea of grace, okay, God's grace, the unmerited love we have poured out on us in God. Because every week when we tackle these very relevant and in some cases very explosive topics, I want you to understand that every week for the next six weeks, we're going to beg God for his grace. And at no point in this series do I want us to descend into this idea that I am the expert writing position papers on these topics. And after I finish speaking, we can seal that as the final word anyone should ever say on this issue, right? No way. Most of these issues that we're going to talk about over the next six weeks have been kicking around the church for the last 2,000 years, and we're going to lovingly and graciously enter into that stream. But we want God's grace over our thoughts, we want His grace over our conclusions, and especially, we want God's grace over the way that we treat one another, knowing that there will be some differences in opinion along the way. And as brothers and sisters, we're going to love one another even when we don't see eye to eye. Okay, knowing also that we cannot tackle every single nuanced question in these issues, but that we're going to wrestle over them in love. So the word for today and for this entire series is grace, and I'd like to ask God for that right now. So if you would, bow your heads and let's pray together. Jesus, we really do ask for your grace. We ask for your grace over our thinking and your grace over the way in which we read the scriptures we ask for your grace so that we can experience your presence and your Holy Spirit guiding us and prompting us into a more full expression of truth. And Lord, we recognize that we're tackling um, some difficult and very hot issues. And, and we ask, as, as we take a look at the, this loaded question series, that you, by your grace, would help it become unloaded. That we would take away the bullets and that we would take away the, the fear. And Lord Jesus, that we would actually experience you. Ready to reject everything we've received as religion so that we might experience your presence and walk in relationship with you. We pray all of this over ourselves and over our conversation in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. You can see by uh, the notes there that you have in front of you, the topic of today's uh, message, it's is... Christianity as narrow and exclusive as it seems? And it's a loaded question, right? It has a lot of um, built-in assumptions around it. Uh, we've heard these questions. You've heard these questions. Is Christianity just an exclusive club? Or why is Christianity so arrogant to believe that it's right and everything else is wrong? And these are the loaded questions that, that you've asked or friends have asked. And, and the exclusive part of the whole conversation has to do with Jesus. Because if you're going to honestly and authentically answer the question, is, is Christianity exclusive, you, you would have to say, well, in a sense, it is exclusive, and it's exclusive around the person of Jesus. 
And so, um, and so we look to his words and we, and we take a look at what it is that he, that he was framing and the way in which he positioned himself. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus is answering a question with his disciples. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So go ahead and just take a look at that. If, if you have your Bibles, open them up to John 14, 6. You can see the context there. Uh, th- this is that pivotal, foundational, theological premise that we look at this, we realize Jesus didn't say, hey, I know the way, I point to the truth, right? I, I-, I can lead you toward the life. He- he's-, he's referring to himself, self-referential here. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And, and some people, when they look at that last phrase, they think that Jesus is standing at the door of heaven like a bouncer stands at the door of a club. And he says, hey, look, nobody's getting in to see the Father except over my dead body, which might be theologically true, by the way. But, <laughs> but I would pull out a different nuance from what Jesus is talking about here. You see, Jesus is saying this theological reality in this verse and in many others in his teaching and the way he approached his disciples he's communicating a core truth which is that Jesus is God okay there's a verse it's not on your outline but it's on the screen John 10 30 Jesus says this I and the father are one Okay, this, by the way, is the truth claim that he made that uh, the accusers of Jesus could finally settle on. They called this blasphemy, and they nailed him to a cross for it. So yeah, this was what he taught, and it was absolutely understood that this was what he taught because the Pharisees ended up getting him on a cross for this. I and the Father are one. Okay, the verse on your outline, John 14, 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What Jesus is saying, friends, in that John 14, 6 verse is you can't come to God apart from me because there is no God apart from me. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you come to the Father except through me? Because I'm him. He's me. We're together. This is a, a unity thing. So there is no other God except for Christ. And what Jesus says in, in this moment is I invite you into the fullness of of life. I invite you into the fullness of truth. I invite you to walk with me into the fullness of the way because the direction that I'm pointing to, it's not a philosophy and it's not some kind of a prescriptive plan that you follow. It's just me. And so we have to decide, every single one of us, what are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to accept what he's talking about as he does this self-referential teaching, or are we going to reject and deny it? The scripture says this in 1 John, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Talking about this unity here. You know, no one who denies the Son can connect with the Father. Why? Because they're one. But affirming the Son is an embrace of the Father as well. And I want to do just a little bit of teaching because many of you who are familiar with the New Testament know that there are two titles that are used of Jesus. And, um, and, and some, he's referring to himself in some of these. Some of the, the uh, writers of the Gospels are referring to Christ. But the two titles, you might want to write these down, are Son of Man and Son of God. 
And as you've read through the New Testament, maybe you read this title and it brings up a couple of questions. Well, what does this mean? Jesus refers to himself as a son of man. And, and what this means in the context in the first century, this phrase, son of man, it meant the fullness of man, the full expression and character of humankind on display in a person. The absolute potential of all character and purity and potential here present in bodily form, that's what son of man means. And in a very same way, son of God means here is the full expression and character of God revealed in human form. This is God in the flesh. So son of man, son of God, they both mean the fullest expression in bodily form. The fullest expression of man, the fullest expression of God here in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 1, verse 15 and following, the apostle Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. You think we make a big deal about Jesus? We don't make a big enough deal about Jesus, right? That's amazing, all of these things that are true in the person of Christ. And then this, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell. In Jesus. You might want to circle that phrase. The fullness of God dwelling in human form in the person of Jesus. Jesus, he's not 50% God and 50% human. He's 100% God and 100% human. And, and then the question is, are these exclusive truth claims? They, they are. A absolutely. We just, we confess and recognize it and, and proclaim it that it, Jesus isn't saying, hey, there are many, many different paths. He, he's saying, no, I am the way. He's not saying, hey, look, whatever truth you pick, it's cool. He's saying, no, 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 I am the truth. He's not saying, hey, hey, there are so many different kinds of lives to live. He's saying, I am the life. And there isn't another God that I can introduce you to because I'm God. We're one. Okay, so, so yeah, it, it, it is a bit narrow. It's called the narrow way. And it's as narrow as a person. And the person is Jesus. So, so we just get that and, and we have to just talk. Okay, that's it. Yeah, it's all centered on Christ. We just sang earlier, Jesus at the center of it all. And we believe it with all our hearts, right? Yeah, we, we, we understand that. It's, it's about Jesus. So that's the exclusive truth claim. Now let me give a couple of caveats. We're gonna unpack it and, and see this thing sort of in, in light of reality as, as we live as humans on this planet. The first caveat about this is that everything is exclusive. Every single truth claim that there is that you have ever heard, it's arrogant. Every religion claims to be the only way. Every truth claim is exclusive, even truth claims that have nothing to do with religion. For example, here's a truth claim that some of you have heard before. It's a bumper sticker. There are no absolutes, right? There are no absolutes. If you're in philosophy class, I, I was a philosophy major, you get, you get this. There are no absolutes, which except if, if that's true, then apparently there is one absolute, <laughs> which is there are no absolutes, which means that statement is a lie, 
And now I'm confused, okay? But, but you have to see that the person making that proclamation is standing on what? He's standing on some kind of a platform of arrogance saying, I know something about the universe that you don't know, and he's proclaiming it. And he's saying, if you believe differently than this, you're wrong. Right? So every single truth claim that there is in the world has some sense of exclusivity or arrogance associated with it. And you might argue, well, no, no, Mike, you don't know the agnostic position, right? The agnostic position isn't making a truth claim at all. It's simply saying that we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. We, don't, we, we, just, we can't tell. We, on this side of eternity, we just can't see the big picture. In fact, the agnostic will say, listen, we believe that, that religious truth is, is so big, it's like an elephant. And if you could imagine an elephant, and, and then there's like a blind guy at the front of the elephant, and a blind guy at the ear of the elephant, and a blind guy at the, at the leg, and the first blind guy's, you know, touching the elephant, and he says, oh, you know what, uh, I, I think that an elephant is like a snake, uh, you know, coiled and muscular. And then the next blind guy's by the ear, and he's feeling the big, you know, flat ear. He says, oh, this is, it's leathery and thin. It's like a big uh, elephant ear. Uh, and... Uh, and then the next guy, you know, the next blind guy's touching the leg and says, oh, I think the elephant is like a, a big tree trunk, you know. And, and, um, and so that's the analogy that is used from the agnostic camp. Hey, we just, we don't know. Everyone can see a little part, but nobody can see the whole thing. And, but then you start to think about what they're saying and, and the premise behind it and what they're saying is this. If you make a truth claim about religion, you're like a blind person who can only see a little bit of the truth. But me, I'm the narrator who can see the whole analogy. And it's, again, a platform of arrogance and exclusivity. I want you to understand that every single truth claim is like this. Every single pathway is like this. Every single philosophy is like this. Every single religion is like this. Uh, just recently, a book came out by a guy named Thomas Nagel called Mind and Cosmos. Nagel is an academic who is an atheist and an evolutionist, right? He does not believe in God, does not believe in Jesus. But in his book, he points out some of the holes in evolutionary theory which fail to address the origination of mind in the cosmos. His book's called Mind in Cosmos. Now, it's interesting that in his book, he's talking about some of the problems in the evolutionary camp that they are becoming somewhat dogmatic and somewhat resistant to looking at the holes in their theory. And he puts it in a book and he releases it. If you Google the reviews of Nagel's book, Mind and Cosmos, today, you will see bitter criticism from the scientific community. Now, he is an atheist and an evolutionist. He's just pointing some holes in their theory. The scientific community, the number one word that's being used to describe Nagel from the scientific community is that he is a heretic. Now, as far as I know, heretic is a religious word. It's not a scientific word. But what they're revealing is in the scientific evolutionary camp, we believe these truths dogmatically. And if you dare question the truths that we hold dogmatically, you're a heretic and outside the faith. And it's every bit as arrogant as any truth claim ever, right? So you just recognize, doesn't matter what the truth claim is, everything is going to be arrogant and exclusive. Everything. Everything is going to be on a platform of we know the truth, and if you don't believe us, you're wrong. 
Now, here's sort of a caveat inside the caveat. The, the follower of Jesus never claims to have all truth. Never. And even the truth we have, we are humble enough to admit that we see as through a glass darkly. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes this. He, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now, in this lifetime, we see in the mirror dimly. Then... When we stand before Jesus in eternity, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Now the follower of Jesus has an incredible humility about the truth claims that we make. What we claim is that Jesus, right, that Jesus is God. And that all of our confidence comes from our connection to him. And humbly, we want to follow him and walk with him. And humbly, we want to learn with him and hear from him. And humbly, we're on this journey with Jesus. But, but it's not an arrogant kind of a stance. So, so yes, it's exclusive because it's focused on Jesus. But caveat number one, everything's exclusive. Caveat number two, truth is found everywhere. And all truth, wherever it's found, is God's truth. So I just want you to understand this very clearly. Your pastor is saying the truth, and, 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 many, and I'm talking about many different forms of truth now. Truth can be found in all sorts of places. Uh, philosophers talk about an a priori truth in settings like mathematics. Two plus two is four no matter what circumstances you're living in. It's some kind of a truth that exists objectively outside of the subjective experience that we have as human beings. And, and so all of those kinds of truths, they are all outside of this religious conversation, and yet they are all truths from God, right? They're all God's truths. In science, the same thing. In all sorts of wise teachers in the world, in all sorts of cool philosophies, and in many different religious settings, we can see examples of truth. Now, Jesus says that he's the fullest expression of truth. I am the truth, right? But wherever truth is found, it's God's truth. I want you to also know the, the converse to this is that wherever lies are found, it doesn't matter where they're found, if they're found in the church or the culture or wherever they're found, they have their source in the enemy of God, who is the father of lies. But wherever truth is found, its source is God. All truth is God's truth. And one of the problems we have in the church, and we're taking great pains to make sure this does not happen at Overlake, but one of the problems is we don't teach our children that all truth is God's truth. And so as they grow up, they never hear this concept, and then they get into biology class as a junior in high school, or humanities class in the fall of their freshman year of college, and they, they hear these truths that they've never heard proclaimed in church, and so they ditch their faith. Because they've never been taught that all truth is God's truth. If it's true, its source is God. Now, the church has really missed this in the past. I'll give you one example. You, you know this. Galileo, right? Galileo attempted to promote a heliocentric theory that the earth revolves around the sun. In the 17th century, he was tried by the Inquisition in Rome. That was a church ministry. <laughs> Nothing ministry about it. And found... Vehemently, 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 suspect of heresy, 
The sentence imposed did not include excommunication, but he was required to abjure, curse, and detest those opinions and was placed under house arrest for the term of his life. Only in 1965 did the Catholic Church revoke its condemnation of Galileo. Yeah, we messed that one up, didn't we? Was Galileo right? Did the church need to be afraid? Friends, the church, you, I, we never need to be afraid of the truth because all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. So we celebrate. If it's true, it's of God. God has absolutely nothing to hide. And so wherever we find truth, we will celebrate it. We will celebrate compassion wherever we find it. We'll celebrate justice wherever we find it. We celebrate holiness wherever we find it. We have to make sure that we understand, look, wherever we see these expressions of God, whether it be other pathways religiously, whether it be other philosophies, even in our culture, movies, wherever, it's like a spring and it bubbles up. We can celebrate God's truth wherever it's to be found, okay? So not only is all truth God's truth, but I would also argue that sometimes people outside the stream of Jesus get aspects of his truth better than his followers do. Now, this ought to stir great humility amongst followers of Jesus, but but let me give you two examples. It is often true that people in the stream of Islam get reverence and holiness better than many Christians. It is often true that people in the stream of Buddhism get self-denial and sacrifice better than many Christians. So, Not only is it that there is truth that can be found, some measure of truth in other religions, it is also that people of other faith spectrums can in some sense live a more Christ-like life than followers of Jesus. And again, this stirs humility in us. And so we just recognize that truth can be found everywhere. Wherever it's found, it's God's truth. Paul is the greatest example for us to follow and point to. Because Paul went into all of these different contexts, all these different cities, all these different faith spectrums, and he proclaimed Jesus. He centered all of his preaching and all of his teaching upon Jesus Christ. So do we. And yet, what did he do? He, he recognized that in some of these places that he was preaching, in some of these philosophies he was speaking into, they had elements of truth. And so he would quote them and use them as a platform, not to then argue that they were wrong, but rather to use them as stepping stones to point people to Jesus. So in Acts chapter 17, and you can read the whole uh, message that he gives, it's it's a great, powerful move of God in Acts chapter 17. He's speaking to the people in Athens, and he's talking about God, and he says this, yet he, God, is actually not far from each one of us. For, and then he quotes, In him we live and move and have our being. He's not quoting the Bible. He's quoting their philosophers. Then he says, And even as some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Quoting one of their poets. Being then God's offspring. See, he he takes that as the truth and then builds on it to point to Jesus. He doesn't strike it down. 
He uses their truth claim, which happens to be true. All truth is God's truth. And then he builds on it to point to Jesus. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. He's saying, look, God can't be an idol, can't be some kind of a cheap uh, token that you buy and put up in your house. Because you yourselves have said we have our being in him and that we are his offspring. And he begins to talk about the person and plan of Jesus. So yes, it, it is. We're talking about the, the, the followers of Jesus who want to do this authentically. We have to recognize, yes, there's some aspects of our faith journey that are exclusive because it all centers on Jesus. But we also recognize that everything is exclusive. All truth claims are exclusive. And that wherever truth is found, it's God's truth. And then the third caveat, and this is where we'll spend most of our time today, it's that Jesus is the most inclusive Savior there is. Jesus is the most inclusive Savior there is. Actually, he's the only Savior. Um, and I don't say that in a proud way. I say that in a, in a very real way. So philosophy major, studied comparative world religions. Uh, you know, Buddhism has an eightfold path. And it's a good path, uh, but there's no Savior in that equation um, the goal is alleviation of stress and suffering, and, and that's called nirvana. So again, n- nothing derogatory about the Eightfold Path. There's just no Savior in that equation. Uh, Islam has five pillars, and they're fine pillars, uh, but there's no Savior in that equation either. There is one prophet, and the prophet points to one God. It's the God of Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. Eastern mysticism offers enlightenment and prayer, but no God and no salvation. The Dalai Lama pitches love and hope and peace and forgiveness, and in doing so, by the way, communicates an incredible amount of Jesus, but he's not the Savior, and as far as I can tell, he doesn't pretend to be. See, Jesus is the only Savior, but friends, he is so overwhelmingly, incredibly inclusive. And I want to conclude that passage in Colossians chapter 1 we began to read earlier. It starts with Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, and this is how it concludes in verse 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, the blood of Jesus reconciles all things to God. The separation and the cursed reign of sin is now over because of Jesus. Through Jesus, all things in heaven and earth and all people everywhere, in all countries, in all tribes, all ethnicities, all languages in all of time are now targets of his love through the cross. And through the cross, nothing less than every molecule in the entire universe is now redeemed and cleansed and made right with God, peace, Ultimate, total peace has been made through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely exclusive in that it is focused on Jesus. But through Jesus, it's the most inclusive thing there has ever been. All are included. Everyone is invited. So I don't care where you were born. Jesus loves you. And I don't care what color your skin is. Jesus loves you. And I don't care what holidays you celebrate. Jesus loves you. I don't care what religion you've identified with. Jesus loves you. I don't care what lifestyle you've led. Jesus loves you. His love is absolutely, completely, and totally available to you right now, right where you are, right who you are. So say yes to Jesus. His love is everything. 
It is absolutely inclusive, friends. And, and I say this, and you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. There is a relational reality to our faith. It, it, um, it, this is a mystical concept, but you need to understand that we don't believe, let me say in the positive, we believe in a risen Savior. We believe in a living Lord. We believe that when we place our trust in Jesus, that in a supernaturally real way, we are now connected with him, that he dwells within us, that we are somehow in him, that we are connected in a relationship that is unbreakable, that our identity has been changed, that we are in a relationship of love with him that starts in this time and lasts for eternity. All of these things are relationally connected. I just want you to hear me say, Pastor Mike, is not primarily a Christian because of his airtight theology. I am primarily a Christian because I have met Jesus and because I believe in Jesus and I've been forgiven by Jesus and I've been empowered by Jesus and Jesus has loved me in my most unlovable places and I love him and I'm gonna walk with him every day till I die and then I'm gonna walk with him for eternity after that. And I invite you to do the same. A buddy of mine got a call a couple weeks ago from a friend. It was late at night, and his friend was really distraught because his mom was in the final hours of her life. And he just was afraid and unsure about how to be with her, and, and so my buddy just talked him through, hey, listen, when you're in the last moments of somebody's journey in this lifetime, it is an incredible honor just to be present with them and to communicate care and love and usher them from this life into the next, and and, and, and uh, his friend was still concerned, but, but I want to have a conversation about faith, and I don't, know, I don't know how to do that. I don't know where to start. And, and so my friend said, would you do this? Why don't you open up to John 3.16 and just read her that verse, talk to her a little bit about how she feels about it, and then just pray with her. Many of you know that verse. It's the most famous verse probably in all of Scripture. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I believe you, Jesus. I, I believe what you said about yourself is, is true, that somehow it connects with the reality. We've talked about belief being more than just some mental assent of creedal truths. We've talked about belief sort of as trust. It's, it's belief with teeth, right? That we trust in Jesus. I'll give you a, just a real dorky example. Um, the investment firm that we use is called JDL Securities down in Southern California. And, um, you know, I could talk to you about them. I could show you their business card, and, and you could believe that they were an upright firm. Oh, I believe that they're an upright. I believe they exist. I believe they're an upright firm. But you don't trust them until you invest with them. Does that make sense? So since they get my money, now I've placed my trust in, in them. In, in a very real way, that's what we're talking about with Jesus. It's not just that we believe some kind of mental assent, but rather that, that we trust him, that we're, we're ready to invest with him. That we say, Jesus, I trust you with my eternity, and I trust you with my life. Jesus, I, I trust you with my sins, the grossest parts of me, and I trust you with my victories, the strongest parts of me. I, I, I trust you with everything, and... and even the parts that I'm really unsure about, I ask that you would meet me and help me to trust you. That's what belief means. And, and, and so that's what I would offer anyone, everyone. Place your trust in Jesus. Believe in him. 
there's a movie that came out several years ago, and it was so powerful. It's a, it's a movie called Dead Men Walking um, with Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon in it. And uh, it, it's, so, it's such a heavy, heavy movie. Actually, Jody and I were on a date night. We saw that movie. It was the worst date ever. Um, but it's a, it's a really powerful and in many ways an important movie. I commend it to you. You haven't seen it yet. But Sean Penn, his character is um, so difficult. His, his character's name Matthew Ponsolet, and he's thoroughly unlikable, heart-wrenching in his inability to feel, interact with others respectfully, uh, has a broken upbringing, poverty, and his own choices have turned him into this monster of a human. And as the movie starts, he's on death row, waiting to die. And then there's this nun in the story, Sister Prejean. She's played by Susan Sarandon, and, and this nun works with him. She's trying to get a stay on his execution, but she's also attempting to simply love him like Jesus. And the whole time, I, I'm talking about the whole movie, he's just a piece of work, constantly denies that he needs to be forgiven of anything, uh, denies that he's guilty of the crimes for which he's been charged, which were multiple rape and murder. He's proud, he's horrible, he... To everyone, it, it's such a heartbreaking movie from every angle, just gut-wrenching. And at the end, it's, it's time, and he's about to be led from his cell on death row into the execution chamber. He is the dead man walking. But right then, before that journey, he has one honest conversation with Sister Prejean. He tells her that he's been lying to her. He says, I'm guilty of these crimes and more. I did it. I did the rape. I, I pulled the trigger. He said that he had confessed these things and prayed to the Lord. And in this moment of just gut-wrenching honesty, he said, I've prayed for the victims and I've prayed for their families. And what was going on in that moment, even though in his uneducated brain, he didn't have the words to frame it, what happened is that he stopped putting his trust in his bravado and his posturing and in the legal system, and he just placed his trust in Jesus. And in the climactic, emotional moment in this film, he says, thank you for loving me. And Sister Prejean says, you're a son of God. Poncelet says, thank you. I've never been called a son of God before. I've been called a son of a you-know-what plenty of times, but I've never been called a son of God. Let me ask you, where else is there space for the likes of him? No religion wants that guy. Atheists and secular humanists distance themselves quickly from that kind of a soiled life. Pathways that focus on external behavior or appearances of holiness shun him. Even philosophies that seek to embrace forgiveness dole it out by the teaspoon, and he needs an ocean of it. And Jesus is there for the Matthew Ponsolets, and he's there for the Mike Howertons, and he's there for each and every one of you, and he's there for everyone who has ever lived. Jesus wants him, and Jesus wants you. And that's why we don't get caught up in the philosophically stupid questions about what about the people who are on the remote island who have never heard the name of Jesus. We simply do whatever we can to share the radically inclusive love of Jesus anywhere and everywhere we can because the world is dying for it. And because Jesus died for the world. 
And because whoever, whosoever believes in him, places their trust in him, shall never die, but have eternal life. Friends, Jesus has grace for everyone. His grace is offered free to everyone. If you're here today and you think you've got your stuff sorted together, I just want you to hear that Jesus loves you and he welcomes you and he provides a pathway of kindness and morality and self-sacrifice for you to walk. And if you're here and you don't think you'll ever have your stuff together, I want you to know Jesus loves you and graces you and welcomes you with open arms that maybe you've never experienced before. And he walks with you when literally no one else will toward health and toward wholeness. And you might wanna write this down. Christianity is not a club for good people. It is a hospital for every broken human on planet Earth. It is exclusive in this. It is completely and utterly focused on Jesus because it is only in this incredible truth claim foretold in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament, that Jesus is God. So it's no good coming to God apart from Jesus because there is no God apart from Jesus. And so we absolutely affirm this exclusive claim. It's all about Jesus. And yet at the same time, friends, Christianity is the most radically inclusive pathway there ever is and ever will be because no one, literally no one, is outside of the target of Christ's love. There's literally no one anywhere ever who is not loved, embraced, and invited in. And yet the world still views Christianity as arrogant and exclusive. I think I know why. It's us. It's Christians. We act arrogant and exclusive, and therefore we communicate a Jesus that's arrogant and exclusive. Friends, it is not we're in and you're out. It is get in here. It's everyone's out, but because of Jesus, we all can be in. And so I'd love to have you just bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you've never said yes to his love, please, please consider saying yes to his love today. Why would you wait? Why would you distance yourself from a love this radical and this powerful and this inclusive? And maybe you're here and you've been on the judgment side of the equation. You've been on the arrogant side of the equation. You've been looking down your nose at friends who are outside of, of this faith stream and friends who don't respect and revere the name of Jesus or friends who approach faith in different streams. And, and so maybe you need to repent of some things today. But Lord Jesus, what we do is we come to you with open arms. We know none of us on our own merit, none of us by our own goodness, and none of us deserve to stand in your presence. And yet because of your gracious, lavish, unconditional love that you pour out through the cross, you invite us in and you wrap us up in your arms and we are so thankful for that. So right now, Lord, for the person who's never said yes to you, my prayer is that you would just overwhelm them with your love right now. That they would hear your whisper, that they would feel your love, that they would say yes to you. Yes, I, I, I trust you. Yes, I, I want to process these truth claims, Jesus, but right now I just want you to know I trust you. Lord, for those of us who are in this room and we've been arrogant and we've, and we've been judgmental, Lord, we just lay it down. We ask forgiveness. Would you please just fill our lives with your love, that you would allow us to live in this world, where we would communicate your radical love wherever we go. We pray all of this knowing that you're here and that you hear prayers and you love each one of us. We're thankful for that.
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.